maybe on a level of being Mexican in, in, in this United States and what that is, being told you're illegal, being told go back to where you came from when it's ahistorical and you are where you're from, also hits different when you're talking about hearing attacks on who you love. Often uh, people critique thinking that it's uh, talking about victimization just because you're studying oppression. It's anything but that. It's liberation studies, it's freedom studies. That's Curtis Acosta, and this is, well, that went sideways, a podcast that serves as a resource to help people have healthy, respectful communication. We present a diversity of ideas, tools, and techniques to help you transform conflict in relationships of all kinds. In this episode, we talk with Curtis Acosta about conflicts over ethnic studies and about humanizing education. He taught high school for over 20 years in Tucson, Arizona, and developed a groundbreaking Mexican-American studies program. The state of Arizona banned that program in 2010, despite several years of positive academic outcomes. The ban was later ruled unconstitutional. Curtis Acosta currently works as an educational consultant and teaches at the University of Arizona. We spoke with him at the 2023 White Privilege Conference in Mesa, Arizona. I'm Sam Fuqua, co-host of the program with Alexis Miles. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Sam. Curtis Acosta, welcome to, well, that one sideways. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. We're so happy to spend some time with you here at the White Privilege Conference, where Alexis and I both heard your keynote address this morning. And we're going to get into the background of your struggle in the Tucson schools. But as you think about it now, I guess we're over a decade removed. What happens inside you when you think about it? Are you still carrying trauma from that even? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's also, to think about it, it's been over a decade, you're accurate. And I'm like, dang, I'm getting old in this. <laughs> I'm earning these canas, these gray hairs. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of trauma still there. I think I was joking with you right before we recorded it. My partner and I were not of the generation that knew about self-care and therapy, but maybe we should have done that. Uh, as far as, you know, the ways we had to, you know, navigate after losing something that was so important to our community and so vitally important to us, both as, you know, educators and, and as, um, as human beings and as, as, as Chicanas and Chicanos and Chicanx people. And so sharing it is part of the um, responsibility and, and I think the gift of surviving is like to think about our ancestors and what they had to survive. And so I want to show other teachers, unfortunately, teachers are still going through similar microaggressions, but also like direct attacks like we, we face, especially policy attacks. And there's just a, there's just a real vibe out there for teachers of, of um, it's not safe. And so I think by sharing the story, showing that, that we can stay strong and it's worth the fight and to our, our youth are worth the fight and, um, our ancestors, our cultures, everything that we that we celebrate in this country is is worth standing up for when it comes to you know dehumanizing attacks um, and and facing up to them, and that you can get on the other side of it and still sleep well at night and uh, and not feel the need to to cower or to be submissive or to um, or to assimilate or as we say sell out, right? Be a vendido, a vendida. The, 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 you don't have to go those routes. So there's a lot of healing to the story too. 
Well, we do want our listeners to hear the story. Tell us a little bit about Tucson and the conditions that led to the development of this groundbreaking Mexican-American studies curriculum. Yeah, well, sometimes when I try to define ethnic studies, when people ask what's ethnic studies, I go, well, ethnic studies is, is you know, handed to us by our ancestors. It, it wasn't just something that was developed you know, after a, you know, a wonderful moment of student agency and activism, San Francisco State University in 68, the Third World Liberation Front, that's huge history, and still we're trying to live up to what they did in creating the first College of Ethnic Studies at SF State. But really it was how was that history at all held on to before then? And, and that was simply, you know, that was, people did it to, you know, um, as a resistance, you know, as a, as a way of affirming themselves and had to do it silently often. It was illegal in many ways. So that's part of, you know, a hat tip to those generations that came before us. But in the 90s, the mid-90s, when I became a teacher, in the late 90s, when we were given the opportunity to, like, actually have a program, and not just a program that was going to be, like, dropout prevention or um, supplemental to instruction, but actually our community wanted actual classes taught. We thought our first intervention should be in the quality of the teaching and an opportunity to learn who you are and where you're from and, and, and to work through the, the impact of colonialism upon our community and upon the way we see ourselves as human beings, right? There's a lot there that our young people still to this day, unfortunately, have to digest, you know, about beauty images and body images and, um, and shame and, um, and, and their, their gender, their sexuality. All these different tentacles of colonialism really wreak havoc upon our young people's spirit and minds. And so we wanted to open up a space to heal all that. And, and so we had that opportunity. I did it through literature. Most of my colleagues were social studies teachers, but we were all cooking together, and it was a real powerful time for over a decade, for sure. What was at the center of that from a pedagogical standpoint? What made us a little different, I think, than um, not every ethnic studies program before us, but because there, we learned it from somewhere, right? But uh, it wasn't just a survey class, another history class. We were really intentional upon decolonizing that space, right? Talking, using our indigenous uh, epistemologies that we were barely learning ourselves, that, that were held for gener centuries, wow, in our own cultures that, that have survived. And so as we learned it, we were sharing it and learning it with our students. And then we, us as a collective of teachers, we're trying to figure out how we, like, you know, there's... These are such non-spiritual like spiritual words, but they're still important. How to operationalize this? How do we systematize uh, some, this experience within a normal, comprehensive high school or, or middle school or even our elementaries? We, we had ways of intervening there. And, uh, and we were successful in doing that. And it took a lot. It was a labor of love. I, we loved that our collective was super strong brilliant people and we hung out all the time before the there were like plc's professional learning communities we had our own right and we hung out on saturdays and you know without any like benefit of like you know time that you would get for certification or for a 
uh, salary increase. We, we did it because that's what you're supposed to do for your community. That's the ethics and principles. And, and we were able to use some of that, those, that, that indigenous epistemologies to really lay a, lay a groundwork for the pedagogy and, and highlight the common humanity that we all have, but not like in a colorblind way. A common humanity that's, that is about deeply understanding who we are and how we, you know, where we're from and how we've come to be. Right, that process of coming to be through this, you know, United States of America experiment. So make that real for for us in terms of like I'm a student, I'm in your class. How are you doing it? That uh, that really grabs me. Yeah, know? I said a lot of real heady stuff right there. <laughs> that 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 that's not that's very teacher facing or uh, or university like uh, college of education facing. I, that is another part of my. Uh, my skills that are my hats I wear, but yeah, but in the, in, in the classroom, it looked really, it, it looked like a, a class that was alive and centered on the students, obviously, and the community cultural wealth of our students and what they brought to the table. And, and being Chicano myself is really helpful <laughs> because I, I, knew the, I knew a lot of the, th not everything, right? Because they're younger and I'm not from Tucson, I'm from the Bay Area originally. So I had to walk with a lot of humility too uh, about, where I'm at and who I am in this space. But we were like reading books and, and having them reflect on the world and, and see themselves in the text, but also the text should also be a mirror to other experiences. So the junior year for my students when we finally got the classes was a very much a spine of Chicanx literature, right? Mexican-American literature with some lat other Latino, uh, Latinx voices thro thrown in there. At the same time, we're looking at contemporary issues, right? Junior year, you do your research paper, so I wanted them to learn about, like, let's, let's look at the education system. So we're reading Jonathan Kozel, right? We're reading Savage Inequalities. We were, we were diving into latest research. I was also getting some of my grad work at that point, so I was bringing in the things I was learning across the street at the University of Arizona, and and we were we were doing it through thematically as well as as through uh, through through the literature, looking at these these themes culturally, but also through these social justice themes. And then the senior year, I got an opportunity because our students advocated for it. Because what happened, they would have us for their junior year and then kick back to a normal senior class, and their their grades would tank because there, was, there wasn't the engagement, there wasn't the, 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 the expectations from the teachers, my, some of my colleagues, not all of them, were lower. And there was a still, and to be very frank with some of my colleagues at the time, there was a combativeness, right? Uh, adversarial relationship instead of a familial one. And that's pedagogical. And so, but the pedagogy and the curriculum work hand in hand. And so, you know, if you're reading about yourself and then you're, you're reading about yourself amongst, you know, your friends and you're creating this sense of community, you know, it, it builds upon itself almost exponentially. So after our students uh, demanded a class, a senior class, because they didn't want the same experience, they were watching their, the older cohort, right? And they're like, they're seeing like them fall off the cliff again. We got a senior class. And so that one I made way more thematic. I wanted them, if they understood some of like, they read Zoot Suit, they read Always Running, they understood, um, they read So Far From God from Ana Castillo, they were reading about the Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx experience. Then I wanted them to see, see if they could mirror that, they see it, you know, with other um, struggles. So we would read, like, I had an awesome, I loved it, <laughs> awesome rhetoric unit that had everyone from Angela Davis to 
to Malcolm, to Batita Martinez, and we're looking at all these different intersections. Um, we had a hip-hop unit, we did some teatro, short stories, we started looking at Chicanisma, feminism through the black uh, lens, feminism through uh, third wave feminism as well, and so we tried to find, I tried to find short stories that were able to show uh, these different types of, 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 of oppressions, and the cleverness of literature usually is an author trying to show you a different way through it. And so they were able to analyze and then create in their own minds and in their own actions a way to transform their own community. I, I wish I could have taken that set of classes. So you've used two words, and I'd like you to just unpack them, intersectionality and decolonize. Could you talk more about that for people who may never have heard those words? Yeah. So I opened my talk today, right, with the with with the principle, uh, the Mayan principle of in la cash, which you know translates to "You are my other me" or "Tu eres mi otro yo," and we re read this beautiful part of a poem by Luis Valdez, a great uh, Chicano, California playwright, about the the idea of of, of empathy the idea of solidarity, the idea of being expansive and learning about somebody. Well, that's how I see it as a teacher. You are my other me. So oftentimes how that manifests itself in the classroom, if we were reading a, a poem that was written or, or a story that was written about with a character who was, let's say, a Chicana lesbian or through the voice or the author themselves, if, you know, a normal, natural question from some of our students, well, before No Child Left Behind, you'd hear... Why are we reading this? Or like, why is this important to me? And that's curiosity, and, and I think teachers should always have a, have a response for that. For us, it was in la cash, because that's your other me. So you get to learn, again, deeply about somebody else. So intersectionality is, is, is crucial. And one of the things we had to model, me as a cis hetero, Chican O, right, emphasis on the O, is how much inauthentic, uh, unearned privilege I, I gain. And so I, we'd have to talk about that, right? And I get to talk about you know, everything from my age, because I was older than them, and that has weight. My degrees have weight. My maleness and my heterosexuality have weight. And if we're about our other me's authentically, then, and, and I know that these systems are created with imbalance and unfairness and, and, and inequity, then, then my job is to deconstruct my own privilege. And so we would model that in front of our students. And we didn't proselytize, right? We would just say it would come out in, in the actual literature we were reading. Uh, but I also think it's super important to understand my, my colleagues and I back in the day, we were, we, were, we were sticklers about reading from the actual primary documents. So we were reading Kimberly Crenshaw with our students. We were re reading Gloria Ansaldua because she's one of our like, you know, intersectional sheroes, right? Um, in our Chicana community and seeing that these how important it is to understand and have that in la cash towards, hey, maybe on a level of being Mexican in, in, in this United States and what that is, being told you're illegal, being told go back to where you came from when it's ahistorical and you are where you're from, also hits different when you're talking about hearing attacks on who you love. And, we, and that doesn't jive with in la cash. And so it was, it was a space of Often uh, people critique thinking that it's uh, talking about victimization cause just because you're studying oppression. It's anything but that. It's liberation studies. It's freedom studies. It's, it's right in line with, with the tenets of the United States. The ones we hope, we wish or were enacted more. 
but there's a, nothing but joy in those spaces. That's some cognitive dissonance that generations of Americans who've never had ethnic studies classes, especially framed this way, they don't understand. It just seems like it's like counterintuitive to them. You know, that's where the, the privilege, you have to back up, close your mouth, and not, not in like a, I'm not trying to say that in a like a um, aggressive way, but like be quiet and and learn and listen, and then maybe you know and and sit in that space for a while, and then maybe ask some questions. But um, that takes actually some unlearning to even get to that point. So that's why intersectionality was so important. But you heard, and even in my answer, it kind of weaves together with decolonial thinking because we were stink sticking to those principles of humanity, those ideas of. Um, we're all related, right? The Mitake Oyasin that I, I was able to learn from our Lakota brothers and sisters is, is very similar to in Lakesh, very similar to other indigenous, to this, this continent ways of thinking that allowed us to ground ourselves in these principles of humanity. And so if we ever got outside of that humanity, we were able to reel ourselves back in lovingly and push ourselves forward deeply. And that's why reading and writing is so important in thinking about these ideas and having our students grow in their own intellectual capacity was is so critical and they, they got it they, they understood that intuitively you know it, but but you do this you know through journal entries and you do this through a little hip hop here and there you know and uh, you can't get this by by using um, and and I, I love preachers but you got to learn it yourself, right? You can't just be told it. It has to be done in a way where you're at the center and a part of it, and that's what makes it special. I'm still like upset that we didn't get to do, you know, finish the job, right? Because we hadn't got to wrapping around to the body, kinesthetic learning. We were under so much attack to show that our that our academic uh, outcomes were so far surpassing anybody else in this state. And it's been an American Educational Research Journal, highest vetted you know, educational journal in the world. Uh, our, our academic you know, outcomes were, were vetted there. They were eventually vetted in court, right, at the federal and the Ninth Circuit level. So like, you know, we were so busy with that energy, we didn't get to use our creative energy towards, oh, well, okay, what do we do about, like, where's the dance? that could be a part of this. And so one of the things that my, the high school I taught at, where my son is about to graduate, my eldest son's about to graduate from, so we had this uh, uh, emerging yoga program that was also really grounded in indigenous from, from South Asia, right? It's indigenous ways of thinking and knowing. And so our students that were taking those courses, they were being able to make those connections and you could just see that they were processing the attacks on us in so much more of a healthy way than, than we were uh, their teachers because they were living their, their practice, if you will, in such a, such a beautiful way. And, and, and we, we got got before that all came to fruition. So we have to talk about how you got got and the, <laughs> the, uh, the backlash that occurred. Was it a, a change in the composition of the Tucson school board or what, what happened? That's a great question. Because you're going along having success for, for many years. Yeah, and doubted internally um, and then, you know, in our own district. And uh, I'll never forget the research and development folks, the folks that kind of audit courses. They don't audit a ton of courses, but they certainly audited ours. They actually apologized to our directors because they were like, we thought this was like some cult multicultural like 
feel good kind of class, but we've never seen numbers like this. And their, their analysis of our numbers weren't even as good. It didn't show the, the, the strength of the outcomes as well as more rigorous and probably more skilled, I hate to talk mess about anybody, but like more skilled uh, researchers down the line once we got into that, that, that deeper water of institutional battling. Really, you know, it, we came to, um, to light because um, Dolores Huerta would come to Tucson almost every, every late March to honor Cesar Chavez. And she was married, obviously, to, um, at that time to Richard, uh, Cesar's brother. Um, and they'd come to Tucson and they, they, would, they would meet with our students. They would do stuff around the community and uh, for years and years and years. I mean, noted leader of the Farm Workers Union, right, right, Dolores Huerta. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so we had the, the, this, this Shiro, as I like to say, here in town, and, or, and our students got to like touch history. Also, a woman who's very much still a part of things, right? She was a, she's an amazing force herself. She came and gave a speech, and, and, and our program was, was getting more and more internal like notoriety in Tucson, in our school district, and uh, we opened it up. We decided to open up Dolores' visit to whomever wanted to come in our school, and, um, and it was packed. And at that time, that was, I don't know if you remember the 2006, there was a, a series of immigration marches because of, in response to the, the Sensenbrenner bill, which was um, in essence a way of like, you know, a, a, a national bill to quell immigration even, even further than it was to, to, to right now it's still to this day, 20 years later, it's still very much the states have the most have, have a lot of autonomy over that. That might have changed, especially since the pandemic. But anyway, so Dolores came to talk to, our, to, to the youth, and uh, she was saying that some of the attacks through legislation on immigrants is a distraction from the war effort in, uh, at that time in Afghanistan, and, and I think, believe we're still in, in, in Iraq. And so at, well, she, was, she, was in, she was ramping up, and she was in her fervor, and she said, Republicans hate Latinos. Because she was talking about like the, the she made the the connection to genealogy, right? Like who's whipping up this 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 uh, this rhetoric towards you know this dehumanizing rhetoric, and who's also the ones that are backing this legislation? And and then she said that phrase. Well, that got out, and our state superintendent at that time saw it as a political moment, and so his name is Tom Horn. He again is our state superintendent, like almost 20 years later, and he decided to use us as a political football. I do think that's his ideology. I think he's very much against the type of programs and who we are. I really believe he uh, likes domesticated students and submissive students. It got on Fox News, and lo and behold, they were national news, and, and then they started going, well, what, who brought them? Who brought her here? And he said a bunch of dehumanizing things about Dolores. He called her Cesar's girlfriend, so he obviously didn't even know who she was and her importance in America. And even it's it's a more of a violation when you know that that that's like not only she is a hero in her own right, but that's also Cesar was her brother-in-law. So I mean, to call her Cesar's girlfriend is even is nasty. But these folks don't even know what they don't know. And they don't care, and, and he's very much one of those folks. So he, along with other folks from right in this, 
neighborhood where we're at right now in Arizona, um, a handful of legislators and, and, uh, and Arizona state officials, just a handful, um, decided to attack our program through legislation. It took three different legislation attempts. They finally got it. At that time, actually, if President Obama doesn't select Janet Napolitano to be the first director of Homeland Security, we probably would have been saved because she was pretty good about like uh, the first legislative attempts. She's like, don't even bring that to my desk. This is ridiculous. But but she left. She was governor at the time. She was governor. Obama she was a, she was a Democrat and uh, who replaced her was Jan Brewer. And uh, very much they used to call them Tea Party. Uh, now I don't know what we call them. I call a lot of it white nationalism in action because a lot of these same politicians, we found out later, have relationships with militias and white nationalist movement here in Arizona, and they back them. So that's what we got ourselves caught up in, and we became like a very much a political football to be kicked around, and, and we hung in there tight and sued the state, and I make a joke all the time with teachers, like, like that's what you do. You learn this in teacher preparation school, right? How to sue the state that's giving you the license, and so... But we knew it violated the, the we knew it violated the Constitution. We lost originally. We appealed to the ninth, the ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals in San Francisco. We won there. They remanded it down for a full trial because everything was summary judgments between lawyers. But we had a full trial. I was a I was the first witness, so I was one of the key witnesses. There's only two of us that were actually in the program that were witnesses: myself and Dr. Sean Arce, who's my my compadre, but he was also uh, our director at the time. And we held it down, and we did what we needed to do, and we were lucky enough to have a wonderful law firm uh, partner up with our original lawyer, uh, Richard Martinez, who had us from the start, and uh, we had justice and vindication all in one, one massive victory in 2017, which is why, Sam and Alexis, this is so maddening to me to live in this moment now, because... We won. <laughs> we we proved like we proved like all this alarmist type of language towards what teachers are doing, and the and the the state trying to intervene with the way things are taught to that point when they don't really have any standing to do so. States do have a right to select the curriculum, but these laws actually were written with racial animus to stop a certain type of citizen, a certain type of student, youth, beyond citizen too to hear their own history. And so our victory was, is a shield for all the programs that can come. The problem is when, when it's a legal shield, you have to go to court to use it. So what we see is bully tactics that happened in Arizona. And so what you're, what you're gonna have to see with, with say Florida, for example, or, or different parts of the country where they're banning books, like they banned our books, they, where they're outlawing certain types of teaching, whether it's gender, sexuality, ethnicity, is you're going to have to organize and you're going to have to fight them and then use our our legal precedent but but they, they can still abuse their power they can still bully and and that's the tactics that are winning the day even though we in 2017 I was like we did it and I, I thought we'd win I really did I mean so many people left our left us and said no nah, no chance and moved on but we kept going 5 years after we lost our program but I never, I didn't think we'd get vindicated. But Judge A. Wallace Tashima, in the response, he 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 listened to actually my um, testimony. He put it in his ruling about how differently we were being treated, and thus the students themselves, because the students have a right to hear this history. They have a right to hear this this content, this curricular content. 
And so we had vindication. If you would have told me like 2018, January 1, when the, when the state knew, this, this state knew it couldn't appeal, that it would lose, that they couldn't even get it to the Supreme Court, that this was a loser and they walked away, this state, this state of Arizona, took their L, which is like unbelievable, right? It was a huge moment because I thought they'd keep fighting. I thought they'd keep losing, but they, they try to wear you out. But if you would have told me after the capitulation of the state to take its loss, that we would be talking about like banning critical race theory and all these other things, that that was still prevalent, that not only, not only was alive, but prevalent to the, the, the mood of the country, I, I would have been shocked because it's antithetical to, to, to what the courts found in our case. So this is where we are. Well, Curtis Acosta, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and we hope to have you back for more insight. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Curtis. Curtis Acosta works as an educational consultant and teaches at the University of Arizona. You can find him on the web at acostaeducationalpartnership.com. Thanks for listening to Well, That Went Sideways. We produce new episodes twice a month. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts and on our website, sidewayspod.org. We also have information on our guests, interview transcripts, and links to more conflict resolution resources. That's sidewayspod.org. Our production team is Mary Zinn, Jess Rao, Norma Johnson, Alexis Miles, Aliyah Fabani, and me, Sam Fuqua. Our theme music is by Mike Stewart. We produce these programs in Colorado on the traditional lands of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute nations. To learn more about the importance of land acknowledgement, visit our website, sidewayspod.org. And this podcast is a partnership with The Conflict Center, a Denver-based nonprofit that provides practical skills and training for addressing everyday conflicts. Find out more at conflictcenter.org.